you grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 9, and when as I was setting down at the offering, my wife told me why you were laughing. <laughs> Had no idea that you were such an unsanctified bunch of people. He turns me on in the sense that he turns the soundboard on. It's 10 more minutes of preaching today. You need it. You bunch of people need it. So uh, Luke chapter 9, we will start there. Who knows where we'll end. Who is Jesus? We've been asking that question over the last two Sundays specifically, but really we've been asking that question as we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke and even more specifically over the last couple chapters. So who is Jesus? Have you answered that question for yourself? Have you thought about who this man is, who this uh, person is in the scriptures, uh, the person that we've been reading about and studying about as we've seen in these various passages, how he uh, redeems people and transforms their lives. Have you figured out who Jesus is? Uh, the one that we've been called to embrace as Lord and Savior, the one that we've been called to, to follow after? Hopefully some of you have been asking that question over this past week. and I mean, we laid that question out to you last Sunday. What is this ultimate question? It's, who is Jesus? And what does he want to do in my life? And so have you been wrestling with that over the last few days? I hope so. I hope you've been asking the question. I hope you've been asking the question whether or not you're a seasoned follower of Jesus or you're a person that's here this morning, and, and maybe this is your first time, but probably more than likely, you've been on a journey, and you're open, and you're seeking the Lord because the Lord is seeking you. And so I hope you're asking this question because I want you to find the answer, and it's the answer that the Bible gives us. Who is Jesus? When Jesus presented this question to his disciples, we saw last week that Peter emphatically steps up and he answers it. You are the Christ of God. Matthew tells us that he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Matthew goes further in his gospel to tell, the, to tell us that in response to this statement of faith that Peter makes, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I tell you, you are Peter, you are Petros, and on this rock, which is Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, in, re in this response, Jesus here gives Simon a new name. He says, you are Petros, Greek meaning Peter is what we translate it. And upon this Petra, this statement of faith, this rock, this rock-solid doctrinal position that you have, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my people on this place. Jesus here names him after this rock-solid statement of faith. And so today, most of us sitting in this room, without any hesitation whatsoever, we would gladly affirm Peter's statement. Amen? That Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of the living God. We would be right in doing so because that is exactly what the word, not just in Peter's affirmation, but it is the glaring de declaration of the word of God. That Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus made it clear here that upon this doctrinal conviction, his church would be built. Here's a question, though. Is it okay for us to simply verbalize this statement of faith? 
Is it enough, in other words, for us to say that Jesus is the Christ and we go no further? Is it simply to have, is it simply okay to simply have the right doctrine? Last Sunday, as we looked at those verses in Luke chapter 9 that were previous to what we're going to see this morning, what we saw there is that it's important, it is very important about what we believe concerning Jesus. It literally is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Therefore, what we believe about Jesus really is everything in our lives. And yet, in this next pericope or this next passage, we discover that the gospel is not calling us to some sort of mental ascent. Jesus is not asking Peter this question and the other disciples, who do the people say that I am, just so that they make a doctrinal statement, so that they have something cute on paper or on the wall. That's not what Jesus is leading them to do. It's not enough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If it was enough, the demons of hell would be in good shape. Amen? James tells us that the demons believe and even shudder at the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, but that it does not take them to the next step, which is a needed, necessary step, and that is of faith and repentance. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that Jesus is sacrificed on the cross, atoned for the sin of humanity, but they do not believe on that for themselves. So it's not enough to have mental assent and a belief in Jesus as God the Son and as Lord and Savior, there has to be more that comes with that. So it's not enough to verbalize. There needs to be fellowship. Jesus' words here to his disciples who had just professed faith in him as Christ and, and as God called them to put their faith into action. He called them to follow him then. So they're not simply to make a theological statement about his deity. They're to put fellowship behind those words of affirmation. So he's making a distinction here for both his disciples and his would-be disciples who were part of the crowd. Mark tells us that it wasn't just the disciples who were privy to this conversation. Mark tells us that there were others and the disciples that Jesus makes this statement that we're going to see this morning. So look at your Bible, Luke chapter 9, and let's begin reading in verse 21. Verse 21 through 26 is what we're going to read this morning. We're going to save 27 for next Sunday as we look at the transfiguration. But look what Luke says in verse 21. And he, Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. What, what is he talking about? The fact that he's the Christ and the Son of God. Verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." Jesus is calling them to fellowship. This morning, we're going to explore these verses. And what I want us to see here is this concept of discipleship. I want us to look at three things in regards to discipleship. In regards to this idea of the calling of a believer to lay his or her life down for the glory of God. 
Not a call necessarily to martyrdom, not a call necessarily to some sort of uh, horrible suffering, though that very well could be part of your story as God is moving in your life and moving through your life. But when we think of discipleship and laying our lives down, it's it's a call to crucifixion. Maybe not in the literal sense, but in the figurative sense of I am dying to self that I may live to Christ. That is what discipleship is. That is this call to follow Jesus and this call to follow Jesus, this call to discipleship. Listen, it's not a, it's not a class to take. We have classes on Wednesday night and we have small groups that we believe you need to be a part of, but discipleship is not you taking a class and graduating from that class and saying, now I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you've been in church any amount of time at all, You've probably taken classes, and I think you should be in our life development classes as an adult on Wednesday nights. I mean, we go through deep stuff. We went through a class uh, on suffering, and we've been through a class on parenting, and we've had classes on all sorts of deep theological things. We're diving into the Word of God. I mean, right now we're talking about how to grow as a believer, just spiritual disciplines that you need to implement into your life. But I don't expect anyone... And I think it's dangerous to think this way, that at the end of this semester, at the end of March, when we finish this life development class, for everyone that's in there to say, I am now a disciple of Jesus Christ. Right? No, it's a lifelong process. We also believe in what we call D groups here, discipleship groups, uh, smaller groups, not your... Your small group, but even smaller than that, three to five gender-specific people that you're getting together with and you're studying through the Bible and you're praying and you're talking about what's going on in your life and holding one another accountable. That is good. But if you go through a D group for 12 months or 18 months or six years, you can't say on the back end of that, I am now a disciple, fully developed disciple of Jesus Christ. And the reason you can't say that is because it is a lifelong journey. You're walking in discipleship, but you're never going to fully get there until Jesus returns or you die. But this is lifelong sanctification. And based upon what I heard you laugh about earlier, you guys got a long ways to go. Bunch of sinners. Good night to think that I would say that. Wicked to the core. Back to Luke 9. Following Peter's great statement of faith, you are the Christ of God. You're the son of the living God. We read here in verse 21 and 22 that Jesus commanded his disciples to make sure they kept his true identity to themselves. Did you catch that as I was reading that? Who am I? People say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah, maybe another prophet of old. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of God. Guys, I don't want you to say any more about that. Right? That, that's conversation between you and I. That, that stays right here at Caesarea Philippi. That stays right here in this circle. Don't say another word. That makes no sense to us, right? Why, does that make, why doesn't that make sense to us? It's because we're reading into it what we already know. Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1, other Great Commission passages where Jesus emphatically tells his disciples that they are to go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so for Jesus to say here in this moment, don't say anything about my identity, we're like, hold on. That doesn't make any sense at all. I thought we were supposed to preach the gospel. I thought we were supposed to share our testimony with others and call people to faith in Jesus. So... What we're doing here is we're reading the Great Commission passages into this part of the story. 
But what we need to remember is that these sets of verses, these great commission passages calling us to bear witness come later. The cross is coming later. It's coming after what we're reading right here. And so in this moment, as Jesus is now turning his his attention toward Jerusalem, he's been in Galilee, he's been in other places. Now in the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels, you're going to see this reorienting of Jesus's uh, purpose or his movements toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, but it's not yet time for that. And so by going and telling about Jesus's identity, it might gain a crowd. It might bring a a movement, which would in theory be good, but more than likely this political movement is going to be staffed with loyal but unregenerate people. They're not looking to Jesus as Lord and Savior, but they're looking to Jesus as some sort of crusader who's going to overthrow Rome, and that's not the purpose Jesus came for. Jesus here is looking to the cross. He also understands that if they go and start to tell these things, that it could heighten the schedule, and everything is in order, and Jesus will die at the very exact time he's supposed to die. He will be the fulfillment of what the Passover is calling for. Amen? And so let's not get ahead of the game, he's saying to the boys. Just keep this between us for now. The disciples, and especially Peter, felt disappointed by this prohibition. I mean, Peter, as you read through the Gospels, you get this, this idea of him. He's, he's quick to answer. He's quick to get on board. He's quick to, to move. And so to be prohibited from sharing would have been very disappointing to him. If that were not enough, they were even more upset when Jesus uh, shares very shocking things. He says uh, in verse 22, that, that, that I'm going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be raised from the dead. That that was foreign to them. Now, for us, we read this, and it makes sense. If you've been in church long enough, you've been reading the Bible long enough, this makes sense to you. Surely, yeah, of course, you're going to the cross. Surely, you're going to the grave. Yes, you're going to be resurrected. We know that, but what are we doing? We're looking back with 2020 historical vision. Put yourself in Peter and James and John's shoes, sitting around that little campfire at Caesarea Philippi. What are you talking about? You're going to be killed. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. How can God be killed? What do you mean you're going to be rejected? Everyone's going to fall down at your feet. That's what's been prophesied. What do you mean you're going to be resurrected? How can you be resurrected if God cannot be killed? This is foreign to them. This prophecy was so completely foreign to their concept of the Messiah that when Jesus died, what happened? They were disoriented and devastated. They sat around doing nothing. My world, in essence, has crashed and crumbled before me because Jesus is not who I thought he was. That's where these disciples were. They heard Jesus predict his death and his resurrection, but they never accepted it as a fact. We know they didn't accept it because when Matthew and Mark record Peter uh, record this story, what they record is Peter pulling Jesus aside and rebuking him. That'll never happen. That's what Peter said to Jesus. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? You're you're wrong there, Jesus. It's not going to happen. The ancient of days, right, knows the end from the beginning. Beginning from the end. And yet Peter's pulling him aside and saying, that will never happen. I think in essence what he's saying is, on my watch, that's never going to happen. Jesus, I'll stand for you. You you see him in the garden of, uh, the, the olive garden, 
And the procession comes to arrest Jesus. And John tells us he takes a sword and he cuts Malchus's ear off. He's fighting for Jesus in that moment. He's saying, over my dead body, Jesus, will that ever happen? But Mark and Matthew tells us that Jesus rebuked Peter. In fact, he tells us that he said, get behind me, Satan. Your thoughts are not on the things of God. Your thoughts are on the things of man. You're looking at with a wrong lens, Peter. So they could not grasp what was going on here. As we move into this next set of verses, what we see in Jesus' word, how Luke records them, we see the fuller picture of what the Lord wanted Peter and the others to understand. They were to make the connection between one statement of faith and living a life of faith. Jesus wanted Peter and those men to understand, it is good to say that I am the Christ and the Son of the living God, but to leave it there is not enough. You've got to put faith and fellowship to those words. You see, when we confess Christ as Lord and Savior, we are embracing his death on the cross for us. We're also accepting the reality of a cross for ourselves. We're to put our faith into action by following him. And when we talk about following Jesus, walking in his footsteps is what it means to be a disciple. We're to follow after him. I want you to see three things in this passage this morning about discipleship. First of all, I want you to see there's a requirement. There is a requirement for discipleship. When you think about the organizations or the clubs or the teams or whatever you're a part of, when you think about what it means to join them, you probably can understand the requirement there, right? There's some sort of requirement. Maybe it's the way you dress Maybe it's the, the card or the badge that you have. In, in all situations, more than likely, there is uh, some sort of monetary investment, right, for you to be a part of that club. If you're a part of the country club, there's, there's an investment. You've got to pay the dues. You've got to be a part of that. You've, in that situation, you've probably got to dress a certain way. You've got to have something that symbolizes saying, I'm, I'm supposed to be here. In the neighborhood that my family and I live in, we have a lake. We have a pretty good-sized lake that, that we can buy in or become part of the HOA membership. But when we're on the lake, when I've got my little 10-foot boat out there with a little trolling motor and I'm trying to catch a fish, I've got to have a decal on that boat that says, I have the authority to be on this lake, right? Or I've got to be in someone else's boat that's got that. So we joined, I don't know, several years ago. And for the first couple years, I didn't have that decal. They just never issued it to me. And I'm like, well, we've asked for it two or three times. not going to ask anymore. If someone wants to fuss at me, fuss at me. And I had a few people. I'd be fishing, and, and uh, they would be out there, and they're on the board of the HOA. And, and so they would ask, hey, man, what's your name? James Taylor. Uh, you supposed to be on this lake? Absolutely, man. I've asked for that little plate because there's a license plate. It's like this big that you're supposed to drape over the side and show that you've got permission to be on this lake. So we understand requirements, right? I'm supposed to have that to be on this lake to fish. When it comes to discipleship, there is also a requirement. So Jesus here, without any transition, moves quickly from, from what Peter says to the requirement that as members of his kingdom, they are to have. And the requirement he talks about is a cross. Did you catch that? The requirement to discipleship is a cross. It was important for these men, these disciples, to understand this cross and this requirement. And it's equally important for us today. So look there in verse 23. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
So discipleship requires a cross. It first requires the cross of Christ. You cannot be a follower of Jesus if you have not believed on Jesus who died on the cross. You first got to experience the benefits of that cross before you can experience any of the benefits of your own cross. Jesus' death on the cross, his blood that was shed there, paid the penalty for your sin. It satisfied, fully satisfied, the wrath of the Father against your sin and against my sin. So what we see in the gospel is that through Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, through that we are made right with God by grace through faith. But it also requires our own cross. What does that mean? Does that mean that each and every one of us need to be taken out to Golgotha and we need to be strung up on the cross, have those spikes run through our wrists, run through our feet, have a spear stuck in our side, a crown of thorns on our head, and we literally die? No, that's not what it's talking about. But we figuratively and spiritually need to die to ourselves. So, in essence, Jesus is informing these men, informing us today that following him is not easy. It was never meant to be easy. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10 that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we need to expect some difficulty, some pushback, because that is exactly what Jesus experienced. In this particular passage here, Jesus, in Matthew 10, Jesus was sending out the 12 to preach and to heal, and he's warning them about the persecution that some of them would face, and he's calling them, in essence, to bear their own cross, to expect that. And we love the cross, don't we? We love the cross. We adore the cross. We celebrate the cross. We rejoice in the cross. This morning in this room, probably some of you have a cross on your necklace, maybe a cross on your necklace or your bracelet, whatever that thing that goes around your wrist is. Some of you probably have a cross tattooed to your body. Not going there. (laughs) Kidding. Totally kidding about that. Just wanted to poke. Bunch of sinners. It's good that we adore the cross, but don't forget what the cross symbolizes. Here's a statement, famous statement by A.W. Tozer. Trevor, you'll like this one. The man in Roman times who took up his cross was not going out to have his life redirected. He was going out to have it ended. And so when Jesus tells us that we're to take up our cross and follow him, it's not, as Tozer says, this idea that let's go out into this wonderful, wooey-gooey type of gushy feeling where we're just going to have our life redirected and it's going to be wonderful and bliss. No, many times what it means for a believer to take up his cross is literally you're dying for for your faith. But it always means that you're dying to yourself. It always means that you're desiring to crucify the flesh and its sinful tendencies. So it's a call to humility as we put Jesus first in our lives, acknowledging him as the one true king and as the one who's redeemed us as his servants. It's a call to daily put him first as we die to ourselves. That's what he says here. There's no holidays. There's no summer breaks from carrying our cross. I mean, when you're a Christian, when we decide to to follow Jesus and put our yes on the table and and we just say, Lord, here it is. You fill in the rest for my life. There are no breaks. You're a Christian every single day of the year and every hour of each day. There's no holidays from Christian faith. It calls us to die daily 
You see, discipleship requires a cross. And so are you, are we dying to ourselves and are we dying to the world each and every day of our lives? Paul had a desire for that in his life. And I love how he articulates it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He goes on in chapter 5 of the same book to say, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. He says in Galatians 6, 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, Paul understood what we need to understand today, and he understood what Peter and those disciples began to understand, that when we follow Jesus... We have a cross to bear, a dying to ourselves, a dying to the things of this world so that we might be alive to the Lord Jesus. And that is a daily activity. Jesus goes on to clarify this further in the next two verses. He gives us a reason. We see a requirement. Now we're going to see a reason. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This verse, in this verse, Jesus is revealing that life lies on the other side of the cross. <laughs> Same for Jesus, right? Jesus told the disciples that I'm going to be rejected and killed, but I will rise from the dead. That there is life on the other side of the cross. And for us, we know that too. Man, when you came to know Jesus Christ, in essence, you were put on the cross with Jesus, not to bear your own sin, but you died in Christ in that moment so that his life might come alive in you. And so you know what it means when we say that there's life on the other side of the cross because your desires and passions and all the things that were sinful in your life, you trusted Jesus with that. You let him to die. You let him die for those sins so that you might enjoy his life. Many things in this world are good and right. We're not saying that everything in the world is bad. We're not even saying that there's things in this world that we shouldn't enjoy. There very surely is and are. We're not saying that uh, we can't enjoy some of those things, but what we are saying is that the world can never satisfy the deep longings of our hearts. Look at verse 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? When the lottery gets up really high, some of you sinners probably go out and buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> and I'm hoping you win because I hope you tithe off of it. Amen? <laughs> what would you do with all that money? A lot of things. I've contemplated it, thought, man, how, how would it be used? What would we do with it? There's a lot of scenarios you go there. I've also thought about the ramifications of all that. Because if you want all of that and you want it with the idea that, man, I have not been happy, but now because I have this, I will be happy, you've already lost the game. Because you don't have to have $1.5 billion in a lottery ticket to know that. We all from the world standards, are filthy rich. And how many of us are satisfied? How many? 
How many times do we chase the latest, greatest thing, and we, we, have this thing, we have this mentality, this idea that, man, once I get that, everything's going to be wonderful. I don't, I'm not going to need anything else. But you know what happens? The next new thing comes out. You're like, well, i got to have that. i got to have that. Right? We all face these tendencies. And, and so what we need to understand in this is nothing in this world, not even the world itself, could satisfy the deep longings of our hearts. Why? It's because we were not made for the things of this world. We were made for one God. And he's the only one who can satisfy us. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy the deep longing of your heart. And so when we think about the cross and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, we need to understand that that requirement that I go to my own cross, we need to understand that that's my call to die to myself because I know that I can't, I can't satisfy myself. I can't fix my problems. The things of this world can't do that. I'm dying myself because there's only one person who can satisfy me, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus here is saying there's a reason that discipleship requires a cross, and that is because you need to be on that cross, dying to yourself that you might be made alive in Jesus. Love of things destroys the soul, but Jesus brings healing and satisfaction. I'm glad he doesn't end it there. He gives us a requirement. He lays out a reason for this to help us understand why we would even dare to go to a cross, dare to die to ourselves. And so what's in it for me, right? We always want to look at things through the lens of pragmatism or reward. And so he gives us graciously a reward here. Look at verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We read that verse, and I don't know about you, but it, it takes me to other places in Scripture. And for, for instance, the writer of Hebrews explains that, Jesus, that all that Jesus experienced on the cross led him to a crown, right? Not that he wasn't God beforehand, but in all of this timing, he had to go to the cross in order for the greater fulfillment to be laid out. So listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. But after making purification for sins, after the cross... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than his. Was Jesus God in human flesh? Absolutely. But when Jesus went to the cross in full obedience to the Father's wishes and commands, he obtained a crown he didn't have before. And he sits today on the right hand of the Father, giving intercession on our behalf. Was he superior to the angels before? Absolutely. But now he is even that much more superior. So in the Christian life, when we think about this and how it applies to us, first comes the cross for us, then comes the crown. You see, the reward for faithfully following Jesus, it's a crown. It's a kingdom. Did you catch that in there? He talks about the glory of God coming. Jesus tells us that Jesus or Matthew tells us that Jesus, as Jesus ushers in this kingdom, everyone will be repaid according to what he has done. Matthew 16, 27, in this same conversation, but from Matthew's perspective. So when we, as a 
committed disciple of Jesus Christ, willingly and daily humble ourselves and die to ourselves, die to the things of this world, we will be repaid for that. There is a crown, a kingdom, a people, a presence with God that we will be rewarded with. When you think about that, in that moment, we will see his glory. In that moment, when Jesus returns, we will be transformed into his glory. And all those self-denials and all of the suffering that we might have endured during this life, it will be replaced with the reward of a glorious joy and the glorious blessings of the life to come in the kingdom. Man, what are we living for today? We have such a short-sightedness about our Christianity. We live for today and at best for tomorrow when our eyes need to be fixed upon Jesus because we have an eternal king who is a kingdom that's coming. It's already here, but it ain't here in its fullness. There's an already but not yet concept to this kingdom that we read about in the, in the story of God's word. But we have the kingdom, but we will also have more of the kingdom. And all of that should be drive us to long to live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a disciple of him. And so let us never then be ashamed to lay aside our desires and the good and the bad things of this world to follow Jesus. He, he calls us to not be ashamed of that. Instead, may we daily fix our eyes on the one who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So in this, we see that discipleship is a lifelong journey. It's not just a here and there. It's not just today and maybe tomorrow. It's you and I daily dying to ourselves that we might live to him. Those who would experience this redemption, those who would desire to follow him, must not be ashamed to do so. Why is that? Well, Jesus calls us to that, but also here's another thing. You've tasted and seen that God is good. Have you ever tasted Jesus enough to know that he's better than the things of this world? That's a terrible response. Like three of you shaking your head. Y'all wake up. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Or do we get so enamored with the things of this world and we think, man, that, that's, that's enough. I'm satisfied. I'm hesitant to share this illustration because I, uh, well, it's not like y'all are going to laugh at something. It's not that direction. We know where your minds are today. I, I love the outdoors. I love hunting. I love fishing. I grew up doing it. Had a bass boat in college and sold it. And for 20 years of marriage, my wife and I have been talking about me getting a bass boat. And then every time we're ready to make a purchase, a kid comes or something along with a kid comes. <laughs> Or some other life thing that happens, so we, you know, whatever we were thinking about or maybe even planning for, it gets like redistributed uh, to that. And finally, though, uh, last month, I bought a boat. And uh, so as I was talking earlier about chasing gadgets, I'm at Greentop yesterday. You'll amen that, Ben. <laughs> I like that. So I'm at Greentop yesterday, and I'm, I'm talking about electronics with this guy that works there, and he's super knowledgeable. And I'm trying to figure out, like, what do I want to do down the road? I haven't even had my boat on the water to fish out of it yet, and I'm already thinking about electronics. So the, the newest Lowrance just came out, so they're discounting the older generation, which is basically just as good, but not as good. And, and so the guy's like, man, I can make you a deal on this. I'm like, all right, what is the deal? And I was like, my wife's never going to go for it. No, no, that's no big deal. So afterwards, before I left, I'm like, it won't hurt to call Karen and see what she thinks. Um, 
So I get her on the phone, and she's like, well, if it's like one of those deals you can't pass up, sure. What is the, name, the, the, the figure? And I'm like, I have no idea. Let me go talk to him. And I go and talk to him, and it's like $500 off versus like 2000 So we didn't make the deal, and uh, obviously, because it's a lot of money. I say all that to say this. Here's what I know about stuff. I, I love stuff. I'm not, I'm not complaining about stuff. I love fishing. I love having a boat. I can't wait to get in it with some of you guys and fish. But if I think that boat's going to satisfy the deep longings of my heart, I've already lost. Right? If I think the latest, greatest, newest equipment's going to make me happy in my life, I've already lost. If I think the relationships that will develop being in that boat as good as they are, if they are going to satisfy the deep longings of my heart, I've already lost. Because people and things can never fill that hole in my heart. Only Jesus can. And me dying to myself and dying to the things that I want and, and those tendencies that I, that I have that, that always lead me away from the Lord, maybe lead me to good things, right? Hebrews tells us to lay aside the sin and the encumbrances that, that tie us down. Encumbrances are good things that aren't the best things. And so if I'm chasing after all of that instead of chasing after Jesus, I have lost the race. And so Jesus calls these men to discipleship, to die daily, humbling themselves, turning away from the things of their, this world, turning away from the things of themselves, and turning to Jesus and he alone. Their statement of faith was good. It was the beginning place. We have to have a statement of faith even for our salvation. There has to be a, a point in our life where we understand that Jesus is God, that Jesus is our Savior, that Jesus' death was sufficient on the cross, that in faith we're believing on him for the forgiveness he wants to give us. They, that requires that statement of faith. But then, as I have faith into Jesus, now I've got to walk in that faith. And that's what Jesus is calling these men to. Fellowship. So this morning, how is your fellowship? Are you following Jesus? Have you first answered the question of who he is? Have you settled it in your heart and in your mind like Peter did and those disciples? He knew who they were doctrinally, but that was not enough, and it never is enough. I love how his orthodoxy Jesus is calling to orthopraxy, that we wouldn't just be all in our head, but we would walk it out in our lives, and that's what he's calling us to. We know of Peter, was he was far from perfect, amen? He's clumsy, he's rough around the edges, at times he's clueless and militant and even fearful, right? And Jesus is going to the cross and he's been, a, he's been arrested. Where's Peter in this midst? I mean, Jesus, or Peter said to Jesus in, in this text, or at least in Matthew 16, he says, that will never happen. You will never die. You will never have to go to a cross. And where is Peter when Jesus is going to the cross? He's lurking behind the bushes. He's lying to the, and even cussing to the young girl who asked him who he is. That's who Peter is. And so we might read Jesus' words saying, those who are ashamed of me will never have part of me. But that's not all of what he's saying here. You see, Peter, despite his mess-ups, he loved Jesus. Don't you know that? Peter loved Jesus. we, we got to give Peter a break here. He did not yet have the Holy Spirit within him. When Pentecost came, man, he was bold as a lion. But at this point in his life, he's trying to figure it out. 
And so when Jesus is going to be crucified, he's lurking in the shadows, but he still loved Jesus. That's why he was following. With all of his heart and with all of his soul, I believe he deeply desired to follow the Lord. He wanted to take up his cross. He wanted to lay his life down for the glory of Jesus. And so this morning, can we say that about ourselves? How are we following the Lord? Do you want to die daily to him? Like Paul in Philippians 3.10 is your deep desire to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Here's what we know about Jesus and about our inadequacies. Here he's saying, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. That's a clear, that's a clear statement that if we refuse to identify with Jesus Christ, he will not identify with us, right? That's a clear statement about salvation. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, I will not believe in Jesus, I'm ashamed to even think about that nonsense. Jesus will not bear your name before the Father. Your sins have not been forgiven through his atoning sacrifice on the cross because you have refused the faith into him, right? But when Peter here... Uh, makes a statement, said that's never going to happen, and then he's running in the shadows when Jesus is actually going to his own cross. He is ashamed to be identified with Jesus, but after the resurrection, what happens? John 21, I believe. The disciples are devastated and disoriented. They're on the Sea of Galilee, they're fishing, they're going back to what they know, and Jesus is on the shore, and he's cooking some fish, and they recognize him. What does Peter do? Jumps in the water. I've thought about that. I've been on the Sea of Galilee, and I've seen the pictures of what they would have worn. And I'm not the greatest swimmer. I'm thinking, let's row the boat up to the shore before I jump in and swim 100 yards and die before I get to Jesus. I guess he can resurrect me. But Peter had such a love for the Lord that he jumps in the water and would not wait to row to the, to the shore. And he gets to the shore, and they have a meal together. And at some point, Jesus and Peter must have kind of got off by themselves, and Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter responds, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. How can you lie to the Son of God? He knows everything. You know that I love you. It wasn't a lie. It wasn't something he was conjuring up. It wasn't something that he hoped for. No, G or Peter loved Jesus Christ. He, he knew him to be gracious and good. And in that questioning of, of Peter, Jesus is affirming this man of God. The man who's in just a few days is going to stand boldly and preach the gospel at Pentecost, and 3,000 people are going to be saved and added to the church. Today, are we willing, like Peter, to lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel? Not going to the ends of the world unless the Lord calls you to do that, but right there in your home saying, as a dad, as a husband, as a man, I'm going to die to myself that I might be the spiritual leader of this home. As an employee in a business in this community, are you willing to die to yourself, die to, to, to the uh, emotional aspect of who you are and your, 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 your tendency to, to, to chase after uh, prominence and, and prosperity, but instead you would say, I don't care about any of those things. I just want to be a faithful follower of Jesus right here in this 
group that I work with. Or in my neighborhood, in this county. I just want to be this one who follows Jesus. He says no to sin, no to temptation, no to those things. Now, obviously, you're going to fall at times like Peter did. But you're going to get back up in the grace of God, and you're going to continue to charge on for the Lord. But there's a hunger there to know the Lord and to follow after him, whatever the cost. If you would, would you stand to your feet? And we're going to move to a time of response. We do this every Sunday. And I know every Sunday I call you to respond publicly. And I'm going to do that again this morning. And I'm going to do it on two different groups of people, or maybe three. I always invite those who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ to come. Do you have to come? No, you don't have to come. But I think there's something about stepping out and being bold in your response. So I'm going to ask you to do that. If you feel this morning the tug of God's spirit saying that you need to confess sin and you need to turn from that and you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to come. As I do that, I understand that you're the only ones I've called for. And you're probably, if you've been around here long enough, you're used to very few people responding, right? We're getting better at it. We, we have some, some folks that will come and pray, and that's good. We need to be a responsive church. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, and that's what the Lord's calling you today to do, you come. If you're in Christ this morning, and the Lord's just tugged upon your heart, maybe he's I don't know, just put his finger on an area of your life that you need to surrender and yield to him. And, and you've put more emphasis there and you're seeking satisfaction there more than you are in the Lord. And, and that's just something that's going on in your heart. I would invite you to come in these steps or this front area. Let it be an altar to the Lord. And you just lay that before the Lord. Or maybe you want to come and pray for someone or pray with someone. Man, let's be responsive to God's spirit as he moves. There's a third category this morning. And... Uh, Largely, I'm, I'm saying this because we have a number of people that are going through our Connections class and, and, and talking to me about membership. And one of the things we require of those who would seek membership here is that you make it public. And so I would invite you this morning to come forward and, and just present yourself saying, here, I am with my wife or it's me by myself. And, and I just feel like the Lord's leading me to join this church. I don't, you may not even know what that all means, but you're saying, this is where I need to put my life, put my roots down. And I want to begin that process. That's all you're saying. We're not turning you around and voting on you this morning. You're just making a statement saying, I sense the Lord leading me and my family to put our roots right here in this local fellowship called Red Lane Baptist. That's our three things this morning. Can we respond to that? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the passage we've looked at today. Grateful for its call upon our lives. Grateful for its clarity and how it delineates what we're to do and how we're to do it. That we're not to be religious, but we're to be in relationship with Jesus. That we're to have him as the, 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 the fixture of our eyes. That everything in, our, in us and in our lives is focused upon him. That he is the founder, the author, and the perfecter of our faith. So God, I pray this morning that we would respond in, in light of that. For those who need to place their faith in Jesus, turn away from their sin and repent of it and, and be redeemed this morning, may that be how those, those folks respond. God, I pray for believers in this room that we would be open and, and responsive. Lord, just say, we haven't got it all together. And maybe perhaps us just physically getting out of the row that we're standing in and coming to the front and getting on a knee is in itself 
a, a symbol of humility that we need to take. We're not scared of what others may think. The truth and the reality is we're all rejoicing together. But by taking that physical position, we are in essence saying, I need help. And God, the truth is we all need help. We're all sinful and broken people that you are in your glory reforming and remaking. And so help us, Lord, to respond in faith and in humility. God, I pray for those who are just sensing your call upon their lives to unite themselves and their family with this church. God, may this be a morning where you just kind of set down on them and say, this, this is a church for you. It's time to make this commitment. So, Lord, be glorified in this time. Be glorified in our response as we just listen with open ears, with eyes wide open, and with a heart that is completely receptive to your spirit. Move in us. And move us to do what you would have us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.